1: Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James West, and today I'm joined by Thomas Aiello. We're talking about Practical Radicalism and the Great Migration, the Cultural Geography of the Scott Newspaper Syndicate, which is out now from the University of Georgia Press. Tom is a Professor of History and Africana Studies at Valdosta State University He's the author of several books, including The Life and Times of Lewis Lomax and The Grapevine of the Black South, both of which have featured on earlier versions of this podcast. Hi Tom, how are you doing today? I'm well, how are you? I'm alright. I'm waiting for spring. It's coming at some point. It's not here yet.
0: It's been here in Georgia since February, so...
1: Yeah, I feel like uh, England and then Georgia, potentially not exactly the same climate. This time of year, I think you probably get the better deal. Probably August, I feel i probably get the better deal. Right, right. This is one of the few times for New Books Network that I've interviewed someone for a second time, and particularly this project is very linked to the first book that we talked about. In terms of a basic introduction for people who may not be familiar with your first book, uh, what was the Scott newspaper syndicate?
0: Well, the Scott Newspaper Syndicate was a broad-based newspaper chain out of Atlanta, Georgia, that began in the early 1930s and ran through the 1950s. It was the brainchild of a family that uh, built its major fortune on the Atlanta Daily World. Then they spread their operation up and out uh, throughout a lot of the country, ultimately kind of creating a new kind of model for how individual Black citizens in their own communities could become newspaper editors almost by default.
1: So what does that mean? Like when you say editors by default, is that the syndicate is providing the apparatus for people in different places to become publishers? Or or how exactly does that relationship work?
0: So the idea was instead of the folks in Atlanta deciding where they thought a paper should go. What they would do is they would include advertising in each of the papers that they had, telling individuals that if you want to be a newspaper editor, all you need to do is come up with a a title, come up with some news of your local area, send it to us, and we will set it. Um, We will add our own material from the Daily World. Uh, we will print it and we will ship it back to you. And so the editors of the papers in the syndicate were often were actually very rarely people who had studied journalism or who were, uh, had any kind of formal training. Some of them were business owners, uh, bankers in various cities who wanted their communities to have more news to help develop that community. There were several people who were janitors. And so it really ran the gamut. Anyone who wanted to take advantage of this kind of service and attach themselves uh, to the Scots were able to do so pretty much at any time. That wasn't the case for all of their papers. Some of them uh, were very much directed from Atlanta. Uh, Their large kind of foundational papers in Memphis and in Birmingham were very much run by Scott family members, but many of the other ones were papers of opportunity, thereby creating this opportunity for a a massive influence over uh, Black newsmaking throughout the South and eventually outside of it in a way that didn't happen with the other kind of syndicates that we see coming out of Baltimore
1: or Pittsburgh or uh, Chicago. Do you see other differences between the black press in the South and and in other areas, particularly in the Midwest and the North, like philosophically or politically, um, what about black papers in the South makes them distinct? The Atlanta Daily World in particular, the the
0: hub paper of all of these, um, has been criticized over the years as being remarkably conservative. And in many ways, they were. It was a Republican paper and stayed that way into and after the civil rights movement. And because of a fierce maintenance of republicanism by the Scott family as editors who are writing the editorials in the Atlanta Daily World, the South has, u- the Southern Black newspapers have usually been caricatured as Um, playing to white interests. And if we're drawing political analogies here, the Southern papers would be to Booker T. Washington, what the Northern papers would be to W.E.B. Du Bois. Those Northern papers coming from an area that doesn't experience the same kinds of violent racism that the South does are vigorously kind of pushing back into the South and trying to fix those problems. The Southerners, live in that world and have seen time and time again, examples going all the way back to the 19th century of black newspapers being destroyed largely because of radical stances in the community. The argument that I made in that first book was that we see that play out in how the first wave civil rights movement played out. A movement that was a predominantly Southern thing, and that was, by the standards that we would see when Black power takes over, decidedly conservative. That mindset is largely developed in the generation prior, and it is structured by the way people got their news. And so that very clearly comes off in the newspapers. There's no one in the syndicate as it exists until the early 1950s who is saying things like, don't go out and protest don't do a sit-in, that doesn't really happen either in the Atlanta Daily World or any of the other papers associated with it. But they are, to be fair, far less radical in their denunciations of things that exist in the South because they know in between publication uh, one day and publication the next that they have to keep living there.
1: The title of your book, this idea of practical radicalism, I guess this is getting to the heart of what you're talking about there. This idea of trying to pursue racial justice, but constrained by the specific politics or or demographics of the South.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. That is very much the way that goes. And so what we'll end up seeing, for example, is individual papers very much using their editorial pages to rail against lynchings as long as those lynchings happen one state over. And they make a case, like for I'm using lynching as an example, but they do this in a lot of different areas. They will make a case against lynching more broadly and the ugliness of it and the problems that exist with extralegal violence that is specifically racially coded. But they'll use as exemplars of that lynchings from other places, even though they live in an area that also includes lynchings.
1: We'll get into some of the state by state examples that you go through in this book, just before we do that, because listeners might be interested in this. So you have one book, which comes out a couple of years ago on the Scott newspaper syndicate, and then you want to do this follow up. How do you pitch this to the press? Well, you know, in the first book, It's about the syndicate
0: more broadly, but it tells a series of representative stories about the way the function of the of this syndicate works and kind of makes the case that it it matters broadly to the story of the black press that doesn't often get told. What it doesn't do is really trace the geography of how that really branches out and how those representative papers exist. Originally, my plan had been to have these two books be one very big book, and presses are so rarely interested in very big books anymore. And so when I did the first one, I limited my scope um, and knew that I had more to say about this subject, that we can't really understand um, the, the various tentacles. Uh, of this syndicate and the way that Southern news spread, particularly along the lines of the migratory politics of the early first half of the 20th century, without talking about the papers outside of the region, without talking about a lot of those smaller papers that don't have enough survivability uh, historically, to to turn them into chapters in their own right, or to tell interesting stories about their editors that can take up twenty pages, and yet they existed and they mattered. And so, what needed to happen was a reclamation project for the smaller papers that don't have the print runs of the Memphis world or the Birmingham world or the Atlanta Daily world, but that still formed vital parts of what this syndicate was. The reality is the vast majority of newspapers in this syndicate didn't last for decades. They lasted for a couple of years at most. And just because they didn't leave that kind of broad based legacy doesn't mean that for the time they were there, they weren't vital to a given community and shaped how that community is going to exist in the South in particular, but then also in other parts of the country. I will say that the press never had any doubt about that. They, they thought that was a good idea from day one. um, And were very supportive of this idea to, um, to, to grow this story out and include, I guess, Southern journalism in the broader story of Black journalism.
1: absolutely agree. I mean, I think the Black press in the South has generally been understudied, I think it's fair to say, compared to, you know, particularly the big Northern papers, the Courier, uh, the Defender, etc. cetera. Um, but I was also really pleased to hear you talk about just the data behind the research. Can you give listeners a bit of a sense of, of the work of doing that? This is such a great example of, of big data writing on journalism history, in the sense that you've had to mine and, and go through all of these different archives to find all of these different papers and put together these, these networks and understand how, how the syndicate works. It just feels so... So big. Right. So how did you approach that?
0: Well, it it felt big to me, too. Uh, (laughs) And it it did seem overwhelming at times, especially for these papers that we don't have any evidence of besides marks in journals and ledgers um, uh, for their payments coming in to the Atlanta Daily World. So this works in two ways. Uh, I began by structuring the list of all these papers by going through every single month of the Atlanta Daily World's ledgers and finding out who was paying into them, what they were paying for, and what the Atlanta Daily World was paying out to them. Uh, The Atlanta Daily World's archive does exist. It's not as complete as some of the other papers in the north, but it is still pretty good. It's housed at Emory and it has a lot of great information there, including a lot of those old ledgers from when it was founded in 1928 on forward. And so you kind of create the dots by finding all of these newspapers that were part of the syndicate and you put them into a list based on months. And so I couldn't put it in the book because it's 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 just too big. But I mean, I have this massive spreadsheet that shows every paper and every month of the syndicate's existence. And it shows how their syndicate tracked over every month and what every paper existed. And some of those, some of those marks only have one or two dots for one or two months uh, because they didn't last very long. And so you create this essential roadmap of what all of these papers are, this, this set of 241 papers. And then you go back and you try to find as many of them as possible that still exist. And so for this book, I mean, I literally drove around the country. I went as far down as Miami uh, to go find a couple of issues of the Tropical Dispatch that were in this archive in in Miami, all the way up to New Jersey uh, to find a couple of issues of the the, the Newark Herald. And then, over to Michigan and down to West Virginia. And I just drove around the country in some of those papers, they will tell you because they are proud of their brief existence of their circulation, or at least their circulation in terms of number that they're actually ordering. We don't know if they actually sold that many, um, for other papers, That is the kind of data that you can find in the backs of some of the ledger books that are at Emory. And so after you do the, after you create your map and then you go around the country finding extant issues of any black newspaper you could find, then you start going and trying to figure out, okay, what did each of these papers look like, not in terms of their masthead, what do they look like in terms of their size? After that, you go to the census and you find the, the, the data for Black residency in each of the states, counties, and cities where these newspapers are. You try to match that up as closely as possible to the given circulation of the papers that you can prove— <laughs> and then you can make estimates about what you think some of the other papers might be based on the kind of the statistical average matching circulation up to size and so it really is an involved process i think it's an important one because oftentimes when we think about the black press We talk about its role as an advocate. We talk about its responses to specific events like World War II or civil rights or something like that. And we trace what the Black press, how it is framing certain issues. What we often don't get a sense of is who's reading it and how big it is and what influence that might have had. And so finding that shape and connecting those dots to make what
1: that picture looks like is vitally important. The, the book is not just about the regional distinctives of like a Black Southern press, right? But it's also about state by state level differences and overlaps and things like that. So the way that you structure the book is it starts off with chapters on specific states and then it starts to broaden out a little bit. Was that a decision you made quite early on in the process, or did it just feel like the most sensible way to to do it?
0: When I initially started, that was not the way I did it. When I was doing the research, my assumption would be that I was going to do this on a timeline, not a geographic line, where I would cover kind of what newspapers were talking about in the early 30s, as compared to the late 30s, early 40s, and so on, because They're all dealing in the early 30s with the Great Depression. They're all dealing in the late 40s with the run-up to World War II, then World War II, then the post-war period, and then ultimately civil rights. It just didn't work that way. It it turns out that these papers, when they're not lasting very long, that kind of structural integrity doesn't really hold together as well. And so uh, instead, I decided to work within those timelines, but do it by state a much smaller sample size for each place and to start as close in to Atlanta as possible and then watch as the syndicate kept moving beyond its borders and spreading out farther. And you're right. I mean, in several of these chapters, there is there is overlap because inevitably these papers uh, overlap. What's interesting, though, is that depending on where you are, we get very different views of the same time period. Because, again, when you democratize the news like this, you're ultimately going to get a selection of content that is built out of the Scots and that is built out of the Atlanta world and has a very specific way of talking. But then everything else that comes locally is going to have its own bent and its own worldview and its own way of talking that is going to make that overlap, I hope, still interesting and allow us to see the way that syndication changes the farther it gets from its genesis point. You know, I I like to use the example of dropping a rock in a pond. You know, if Atlanta is where the rock drops, as the ripples spread outward, they fundamentally change as they get farther and farther away from the center.
1: I think you have this, this quite nice description in your introduction of, of the book or what you're trying to do. And, you, you know, you're basically saying what follows is a geographical portrait of the syndicate and some of its most representative papers. What does that look like? Because that doesn't necessarily just map onto like which were the largest. So how did you choose exactly which papers to use as a representative in, you know, for example, Georgia or Alabama or somewhere else?
0: So I will say, first of all, that some of those choices are made for me by availability. Certainly in some of the smaller states um, outside of the South, availability becomes the most important thing. And so I end up talking about papers simply because I have a couple of issues from them from some archive in the back room of some public library in Newark, New Jersey, or something like that. And they end up becoming a representative simply by default. But in places like Georgia and Alabama, that's very different. In places where we have a lot more of those papers, I'm judging relevancy based on circulation size, correspondence with the Scots. You get a relatively good idea of who the Scots cared about most through their correspondence and through other things that are available um, in their archive. In Indiana, the one of the papers in Indiana is actually run by a guy who used to work at the uh, Atlanta office, moved to Indiana for non-newspaper-related reasons. But once he's there and he knows the process, he decides to create a newspaper in Indiana. And because of proximity to the family, because of circulation rate, because of availability, uh, all of those things factor in to what gets talked about more than others. And that becomes... Um, it becomes a limiting process. So what ends up what ends up happening is each of these chapters was probably uh, about thirty pages longer uh, than they are in this book form. And then you go through, and because you want to tell as many stories as possible, you want to make sure that these, invisible editors of invisible newspapers get seen. Um, And if you have the ability to track any of the editors' lives or any of the newspapers' lives, you want to make sure that they get in there because they have been kind of discarded by the historical apparatus and you want to restore them. And so the chapters end up becoming gigantic and unwieldy. And then you go back and you say, all right, now that I have all of this what is the best synthesis of what this state has shown me over, you know, all of, these, all of these months of reading all the Black newspapers in this state? And so then you kind of trim from there. It wasn't um, a process in which I said, all right, this, this paper matters, this one doesn't.
1: Across the time period that you're looking at, so we're really talking about the 1930s into the 50s, what's... The trajectory of that in terms of, you know, you've talked about Atlanta or, or Georgia being at the centre and then these, these outward ripples. So is it the case that um, the, the rise and fall of the syndicate, if you like, does that map to Georgia? Or is it you see peaks in the number of papers happening at different times depending on the state? It's
0: interesting, as far as the syndicate more broadly goes, there really is a bell curve, and it really is a rise and fall. And that curve hits its peak in the middle of the 1930s, uh, in the heart of the Great Depression, when the Black population is poorer than it had ever been since slavery. And it kind of goes to show the willingness of Black migrants um, leaving the South to try to take part in something like this when you do make a Democratic news available to them. And so at its height, for example, the syndicate had 40-something papers at at one time. That was its height. Most of those papers didn't last very long, though. Eventually, while it starts as this small Georgia operation and it spreads out to 40-something papers all over the country, it begins to contract after that until finally in the 1950s, we're back down to like five papers. And of course, the Atlanta Daily World is still around. The Birmingham World and Memphis World are not, but those three kind of made up the core and stayed throughout the civil rights movement. The Atlanta Daily World is the only one that still survives today. As far as each state goes, though, you can also see individual bell curves based on population influx in the interwar migratory patterns. So for example, we just mentioned Michigan. Michigan does that very same thing. There was one syndicate paper in Michigan in the mid 1930s at the syndicate's peak. But in 1939, it explodes because there is a specific entrepreneur who wants to create these vehicles and they end up getting seven newspapers at one time in Michigan. Now that goes away. And for the 1940s, there are only going to be two. So in each state, it looks a little bit different. And we can basically track that to population influxes in a given region. And to go back to that, that ripple metaphor, it really does look like that, where um, the, concentra- the most papers are always going to be Georgia, Atlanta, um, South Carolina, Mississippi, Florida, And those papers tend to last longer, but there also tend to be fewer of them, because if you live in Georgia, you are going to have access to the Atlanta Daily World. And so there becomes less reason for you to want to start your own paper. But in these other places, the farther out we get, we see more and more papers developing for shorter amount of times. As people see a need, they try their best, they realize that doing a newspaper is not easy and that selling one in the heart of the Great Depression to a population that has very little disposable income is also incredibly difficult, and so it doesn't end up lasting very long. And so the number of papers increases the farther out you go from the center, but also, the amount of time that they exist also decreases in proportion.
1: It's Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to have this balance, like as you're describing there, between, I guess, saturation and then this network of smaller papers that don't last as long, but there might be more of them. Right. Do you get a sense of what the threshold is. Does there have to be a certain size of a black population in a particular area for a paper to start? Or does it depend more on just specific ambitions of of editors in particular areas?
0: Right, that is a great question. And it is one that I don't have a satisfactory answer to. I am right now trying to work on Uh, looking at population thresholds for those cities to see if that actually is the case. What I can tell you from what I already have done, though, is that the tendency that I've seen so far is that there does need to be a population threshold in a place where there is competition. So, for example, when you're creating newspapers in Michigan, you need a given threshold because The Defender has put a paper in Michigan because there are other competitive newspapers there. In Phoenix, Arizona, (laughs) uh, there just happened to be someone who had uh, a woman who had done journalism before, who had moved to Phoenix, Arizona from Georgia, who had been a reader of the Atlanta Daily World and wanted to bring that Southern voice to a relatively small black population in a predominantly white space. And they didn't really have the kind of population threshold for, for example, for the defender to come in and create the Arizona defender. I mean, there wasn't that kind of level of black population out in Arizona to make that a reality. And so the population threshold was way smaller than it had to be for something like the Courier or the Defender or the Afro to come and bring one of their papers there, because it's just an individual in the community. And by making syndication a bottom-up process, it allows an individual there to say, you know what, we need our own newspaper. We're not being covered by the local Arizona newspaper. So I know, because I'm from Georgia, that we can connect back home to this syndicate and get viable news right here if we do it ourselves.
1: More broadly, thinking about American history or African American history, what kind of value do you think this approach adds?
0: It's interesting, when we think about the Great Migration and we think about uh, the diaspora within a diaspora uh, that develops, Um, after Reconstruction, when the Black population, which was more than 90% in the South, starts to diffuse around the country, we often interpret that as um, an abandonment of a violent region that is built on this kind of pseudo-apartheid state. But the reality is, just because you leave a place uh, physically, you don't you don't leave it in other ways. I mean, everybody who makes the trip on the Great Migration leaves family behind and leaves friends behind and leaves everything else behind. There is always going to be this connection to the South, and the one way that umbilical cord can stay attached is through the news, and by bringing the news from home to your doorstep what you're doing is maintaining those historical ties in the very same way that we see linguistic, cultural, musical, and literary ties to the original spot uh, of the original diaspora. In the 20th century, when technology has changed the way we catalog and save those kinds of things, the newspaper becomes the catalyst for ensuring those connections remain. It might not be a viable method of doing things for, for example, other syndicates because other syndicates were very much top down and were directed at a level and it wasn't the community making that choice necessarily. It was businessmen realizing that there's a market for a newspaper. But the specific nature of this syndicate and the way they did this bottom up approach allowed them to really be uh, in a call and response with the migration patterns coming out of the South. I mean, this is a syndicate that was originally known as the Southern Newspaper Syndicate. It never intended originally to be outside of the South, it was called the Southern uh, Syndicate for a reason. Its original advertising claimed that you shouldn't read the Defender or the Courier that were being shipped down to the South because they weren't authentically Southern and they and the only Blackness that mattered was Southern Blackness. They were inauthentically Black and so therefore you shouldn't read those. You should only read Southern newspapers. And eventually when that Southern population, that captive audience started to leave, the papers followed along with them not only are they taking their physical bodies with them, they're taking their southernness with them, and they are taking their way of seeing the world with them. And ultimately, people like the Scots realize that that means that they can take their news with them too. And if all of our worldviews are filtered through the lens of how we put nonfiction into our brains, that means that this Southern mindset and this way of conceiving uh, racial inequality in the country can travel with you anywhere you go. And because of the syndicate process, you can even be the one to help create it by doing it yourself. Even if you happen to be um, a maid or in domestic service or a janitor or an elevator operator, and you can create your own newspaper and contribute to that knowledge making in a given community with a distinctly Southern base that allows you to keep ties to the place that you still are part of. I don't know what other elements of migratory culture would benefit from that kind of study simply because this is this kind of unique element where we are kind of democratizing something that is coming directly from the South. But certainly in this case, and because of what they're doing, and because of the importance of how we receive news to how we see the world, this particular instance does lend itself to kind of tracing those lines and seeing migratory politics help spread a decidedly Southern Black mindset to other
1: parts of the country. That's a great, really evocative way to sum up. Hopefully, listeners get a sense from this interview today, first of all, just how much labour has gone into the, the mapping and remapping of these black print networks, but also the importance of this work in shedding new light on the black press in the South. It's a reminder that we have these certain narratives about the black press and what black periodicals did and where they were and who they were for. And I think there's just so much more work to be done, whether that's geographically conceptually, editorially. Thanks so much for your time today, Tom. I absolutely
0: appreciate it. Thanks so much.